Radio Mano Papachango. Bronislav Malinowski was one of the founders of anthropology. Uh, he visited New York for the first time in 1936, and this is what he wrote about his experience. He said, No experience in my exotic wanderings among the Trobrianders and the Chaga, among the Maasai and the Pueblo, has ever matched the shock I received in my first contact with American civilization. The enormous yet elegant monsters blinking at me through their thousand starry eyes, breathing white steam, giants which crowded in fantastic clusters over the smooth waters of the river stood before me, the living, dominating realities of this new culture. During my first few days in New York, I could not shake off the feeling that the strange genius of this modern civilization had become incarnate in the skyscraper, the subway, and the ferry boat. Large insects in the shape of automobiles crept along the gutter called street or avenue, subordinate but important. Finally, as a fairly insignificant and secondary byproduct of this enormous mechanical reality, there appeared the mi microscopic bacteria called man, sneaking in and out of subway, skyscraper, or automobile, performing some useful service to their masters, but otherwise rather insignificant. Malinowski concluded with a prophetic warning. Quote, modern civilization is a gigantic hypertrophy of material objects and contemporary man will still have to fight his battle in order to reassert his dominance over the thing. There you go. We still haven't fought that battle or we certainly haven't won it and it seems to me that the uh, the battle is pretty much lost at this point, and what we need to sort of wait to happen is for the the dominant force to play itself out, which is what generally happens, right? It's what happened in Afghanistan when the dominant force of the Soviets came in. It's what happened in. Uh, again, it's happening now in Afghanistan when the dominant force is the Americans. I was thinking initially of the Soviets. It happened in uh, Vietnam, obviously. It's happened in many places around the world where the dominant force comes in and um, and can't sustain its dominance. And uh, and that's when, when you make your move. So we'll just see. Is, is the battle between humanity and civilization an invasion? like Afghanistan and Vietnam and so on, that will ultimately fail, uh, leaving us, the guerrilla force, to come back in and take over again? Or is it more like the invasion of North and South America, where um, it doesn't seem that, that there's going to be any reprieve for the, the invaded? I've received uh, a few very touching emails in the last week or two 
uh, from people saying, dude, you sound depressed. You know, you should, uh, you should look on the bright side or get out more or whatever advice they're giving. Um, don't worry about it. It's, it's just part of the process of writing a book about the end of the world. You know, (laughs) you sort of have to, you have to spend a lot of time up to your neck in, uh, some pretty, uh, intense stuff. But reading the book hopefully won't be the same because you'll read in, if you read the book, you'll read this stuff in uh, an hour, uh, you know, a chapter that it took me a month or so to write. So it's a different time frame. It's much easier to blow through it when you're reading it than it is to write it. Um, and I fully intend after this manuscript is turned in and approved to uh, grab Casilda and go to a tropical island somewhere and chill out and eat fresh fruit and fresh fish and swim in the ocean every day and watch the sunset every evening and look at the stars every night and you know I'll sort of regain my equilibrium Uh, so don't worry about me I appreciate it Uh, this is a temporary thing just a project you know it's like I think not to be self-aggrandizing but you know every there are a lot of jobs like this where you have to sort of uh, confront things that uh, a lot of people don't want to so that you can convey them in a way. Uh, Doctors do it every day. Justin, my buddy, the fireman, does it all the time. And the guy we're going to be talking to today has done it a lot in his life. He's um, Rod Dow. Very interesting. I'm, I'm very excited about this episode. It's unusual in so many ways. Rod Dow is a legendary smoke jumper. Uh, also known as a hotshot. These guys who jump out of airplanes with parachutes and firefighting equipment into remote areas and fight uh, fires. I think Rod said he he was 32 years or something doing this. Um, and he's a very interesting guy because he really enjoyed the work and never wanted to move up into administration. So where most people would have moved up the ranks over the years, he just said, no, leave me here. I just want to keep jumping out of airplanes. And because he he was accruing so much more experience than the other guys, he did end up um, in a leadership role, sort of running fires, but um, you know, not sitting in an office. He was still jumping out of the planes with the other guys. And, uh, you know, he accepted a lower level of pay in order to stay out in the field. And uh, we recorded this at his house, which he built with his own hands, most of the logs anyway, and that he cut down on his own property. Uh, I don't know if it's 50 or 100 miles east of Mount Rainier in a very remote area and um beautiful place oh my god there's some pictures on my site chris ryan phd for those of you who haven't been there uh go to tangential it's podcast tangentially speaking and you'll see uh the the photos that i took at his place beautiful place amazing view and so you'll hear us out there you'll hear the the wind chime and the birds and occasional cow off in the distance and uh, and it's a slower conversation. There are extended silences because that's the way guys like this talk. You know, that's he's got a rhythm. He's he's um, used to being in the woods. He's spent most of his life out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, so it creates a different kind of of uh, 
rhythm. And and also, uh, we got really drunk the night before, so we both had a hangover. <laughs> so there's that, too. I'm, I'm sort of romanticizing this, uh, you know, macho energy where maybe we were just hungover. I'm not sure. A couple weeks ago, President Obama appeared on Mark Marin's podcast, which is pretty amazing. I think every podcaster in the world just went, fuck, President Obama, you bastard, Mark Marin. Uh, that's a pretty good get right there. But I was thinking, I was I was driving with Cassie. We were up on Mount Hood a couple of days ago, and I was thinking about that, and <laughs> I thought, well, I've got something even better than Obama on my podcast. I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but a while ago I got a, an email from a woman who said that she found my voice so sexy that she um, got really horny after listening to the podcast and, and would go and fuck her husband or boyfriend. I don't know if they're married. Um, after listening to the podcast, she'd get all hot and bothered. And then uh, I thought that was cute and funny. And then uh, a couple months later, I got another email from her saying, oh, guess what? Yeah, I'm pregnant because of you and your sexy voice. <laughs> so, and then now the baby's been born. And, uh, you know, she re- she wrote me an email referring to it as my voice baby. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, if you're listening now, uh, hello, hello. <laughs> and uh, thank you for, for that amazing compliment. It's it's right up there with the highest compliments I've received, I think. Um, I was in a bar uh, a month or two ago. I may have mentioned this. And a, a woman there, rec- Cassie and I were there, and she recognized us, and she had read Sex at Dawn, and she said, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'll be right back. And she left, and she came back with a Sharpie, and she said, will you sign my ass? And <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, sign my ass. And she just pulled up her skirt and bent over, and I signed her ass. So there you go. I mean, it's some, it's there's some interesting things that happen when you write a book and have a podcast. So, okay, I didn't get Obama on here, but I do have a voice baby, and I have signed a woman's ass in a public place. All right, just a little bit of business to attend to. Do not send money to Libsyn. If you want to support the podcast, please do it directly through uh, fundwhatyoulove.com. Or through a donation, there's a donate button on my website, or you can also, if you're going to order some stuff on Amazon, just click through my website. There's an Amazon affiliate link there, and a couple percentages of whatever you spend will come back to us. So those are good ways to do it. Um, Libsyn, I'm sort of phasing out of the premium um, subscription service that they have, but it's because it's a one-year thing and then a six-month thing and then a one-month thing, you have to phase it out in in stages. So we're down to the six-month thing, but I don't want anyone, um, uh, if if you haven't already done it, don't send money to them because some people have been having problems with automatic renewals, which is not good, and then you have to write to customer service and mess with them. Um, And also, they take half the money just for processing your credit card. So I'd uh, I'd encourage you not to use that method, and uh, I mean they're fine as a posting as a podcast hosting service, but this the premium thing is uh, that's a silly system fifty percent for processing a credit card, um, and uh, I want to thank of course as always Carsey Blanton, 
Uh, you'll hear her song at the end of the podcast, Smoke Alarm. Uh, if you've listened to the, this podcast in the past, you know the song. It's wonderful. You can find all her music at carcyblanton.com. And thanks to Basin and Range for the theme music I've been using at the uh, opening of the podcast. You can hear more of their music at um, basinandrangeband.com. And Shore Design T-Shirts, my favorite Thai T-Shirt manufacturer. We just uh, restocked the Civilized to Death shirt. So if you wanted to order and we were out of your size, we've got them back now. And we'll have some Talking Out My Ass shirts for those of you who are uh, into that podcast. The, my sort of supplemental podcast that's not interview-based but telling travel tales. I think I have 14 or 15 episodes of that up now. Uh, we'll have some Talking Out My Ass shirts. Uh, as soon as I get to L.A. in a couple of days, I'll take a picture and put them up on the website. Looks like I'll be hanging with Duncan on Friday uh, doing his podcast. I don't know when he plans to release it, but that'll be fun to see him again. Unfortunately, Joe will be in Brazil when I'm in L.A., so we can't do a shrimp parade. But one of these days, we'll all be in the same place at the same time, and we'll do another one of those. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rod Dow. Uh, if you do, you should definitely get a copy of his book. Uh, I put a link up on the, the, the Chris Ryan PhD um, site. You'll see it there if you go to the episode description and the photos of his house and him. There's a photo of him when he was a young guy covered in soot <laughs> or ash or smoke or whatever it is that, that you get covered in when you're fighting forest fires. And then there's a, a couple photos of his house and, and the location where we're sitting when we're recording this. So you can imagine uh, where all those bird sounds are coming from. Anyway, hope you enjoy this. Thanks for all your emails. Thanks for your support. Thanks for the donations. Those of you who've been sending them in and those of you who uh, sponsor the podcast on fundwhatyoulove.com. It's really helpful and uh, I really appreciate it. I will catch you next week. I hope everything's going well out there. This is a song called Nostalgia by friend of the podcast, James Thomas. I've played a couple of his tunes before. He's fantastic. Um, his album, at least this one, the one that Nostalgia is from, is called Before the Light. Check him out. James Thomas album is Before the Light. The song is called Nostalgia. Hope you dig it. See you next week. A little bit afraid of Chinese music A little bit ashamed to burn the old church down A little complication slip of the tongue A little Bible burning in the name of the crown A little old dream I wish I'd killed her A little quiet moment when the sun goes down A little cold religion fit of a wise man Skinning a cat in the dress of a clown I'm in and out of chains Like a porter through the rain I found my baggage in an old hotel Without any poets to its name Wondering how it's gonna be Two strong hands but there's nothing here for me A little bit of dark to make the children brave A little sweet Maria to be saved A little conversation, a mystic door A little blood to wipe up off the floor 
A little bit of shadow in the water, a little bird song in the oil and the wine, a little candle for the morning, a little old dog in the ruins and the master's blind. I tell it like it is. I'm hiding phantoms in this old guitar and burn the window as I sit. And dream I'm someone from afar Looking out across the hill I imagine an army running through the mind Of an old man killing The nightmare runs and the bells keep ringing A little bit afraid of Chinese music A little bit ashamed to burn the old church down A little complication slip of the tongue A little Bible burning in the name of the crown A little bit of animal in the spark of the knife A little funeral at the heart of my life A little dance with the dying ghost in my eyes A little hand on the mouth of the child in me crying I'm in and out of change Like a porter through the rain I found my baggage in an old hotel Without any poets to its name Wondering how it's gonna be I escape for a moment The world falls back on me And so I tell it like it is I'm hiding phantoms in this old guitar And burn the window as I sit And dream I'm someone from afar Looking out across the hill I imagine an army running through the mind Of an old man killing The nightmare runs and the bells keep ringing We're sitting on a sun-drenched porch looking out onto, uh, my God, how many acres are we looking at here? Well, there's 80 of mine and uh, maybe uh, three or 4,000, no, more than that, 10,000 of uh, government land. And uh, no matter what direction you look, you can't see another human being or another house, or a car. It's uh, almost true. My, if my rec room wasn't there, you could see the top of a guy, his house going that way. Ah, uh, to, to the half to a the mile east. to the east. But so this the rest is of this is um, eighty acres that sticks out into the government land. So you got government land on three sides. Rolling hills. It sort of looks like uh, I don't know, like those westerns, the Big Valley, you know. A little bit, Ponderosa or something. Where yeah. it's a transition country where you're going from desert to the east, rolling uh, sage hills, and right where we are, transitions over to pine, uh, Ponderosa pine in the draws, mm -hmm. where it gets more moisture, and then. You can just see right where it changes, just uh, five miles that way, uh, and gets more solid timber. 
after the worst and then Mount Rainier. You can see Mount Rainier. Yeah, Mount Rainier is right behind you. Pretty solid today. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. So uh, we're sitting here on the porch of this house uh, built by my guest today, Rod, on using timber from the property. For the logs, yes. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the part of it that's it's just regular construction is... I just got that from the lumberyard like anybody else. But, <laughs> but the logs, yeah, all the log work is from uh, trees here. That took a while. And the reason I know you is that uh, you and Justin met, how, how many years ago was that now? 14? 13. 13, 14 years ago. And you're a legendary smoke jumper. <laughs> <clears throat> you know you know what you have to do to get legendary? Die. <laughs> you, know, you, you just have to hang around too long. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's no secret to it. Uh, I did do it for quite a while, 32 years, and... You know, by the time you're done with 32 years of anything, then everybody in that job knows who you are. So yeah. you're supposedly uh, legendary. Well, also, I, I don't imagine a lot of guys stay in that job for 32 years. Uh, more than you would think, but uh, no, not a lot. I mean, probably a total of a couple dozen in history, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I mean, that's the kind of job that's got to take it out of you. I mean, how many jumps have you done? Have you kept track of that? They kept track, and I don't know the exact number of total jumps. It's about 490 because they hand out these pins every 50. Mm -hmm. And I got my 450, but I didn't get my 500. And I think I was pretty close. Anyway, I did keep track of fire jumps. Uh have practice jumps where you're just trying to stay current with your procedures and learn to steer better, etc. And then you have uh, actual fire jumps where you're jumping in to suppress a fire. And I kept track of that because I ended up with the most of those, uh, 286. Um, and uh, that's since been long broken. Hmm. There's a couple guys that are, I think one guy got over 400. Wow. While he uh, was her. And do you, what, from what height do you jump generally? Uh, the two systems are at two different altitudes. All of the Forest Service jump bases use round parachutes. They jump at 1,500. The BLM uh, bases use square parachutes, ram air parachutes, and uh, you jump at 3,000. Hmm. So that's to give you more uh, maneuverability to land exactly where you want to be? Yes. Uh, you actually set up an, an actual landing pattern with them like a plane would. Right. Uh, and uh, they just started out, when they switched over to it, just started from a higher altitude, and it seems like it's working, so right. that's what they're doing. Right. And it's it's very fun flying those squares yeah. because you've got 25 miles an hour forward speed or 20 miles an hour, whatever it is. And um, so, yeah, you can fly all over the place. Have you have you jumped for fun? Nope. <laughs> it's just a work thing. You know what? There was a guy, uh, quite a few guys did skydiving on the weekends. One of them was a pro. He, uh, the uh, Parachute Association called us up in the middle of the summer asking us 
to pie him in the face because uh, he had 70 hours of free fall. 70 hours? 70 hours at about a minute to a minute and a half per. Yeah. <laughs> average in a minute. He had had Mitch Dakota. He had had 13 malfunctions, and he only counted the ones where he had to pull his reserve. If he fixed it somehow, he didn't count that as a malfunction because <laughs> his numbers were just getting uncontrollable. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I think he had around 9,000 or 10,000 jumps, and he, uh, he kind of gave it up. Moved to Arkansas and gave up uh, skydiving. Yeah. Well, it's probably a good thing to give up, <laughs> you know? Like my, my uncle's a pilot I told you about. The guy flew the planes to Alaska all the time. Right. And he always used to say there are only two kinds of pilots, smart ones and dead ones. That's right. That's it. I guess probably everybody says that. He, uh, it's, it's hard to, uh, to focus when you look up and see all this space and distance and beauty. Yeah. There's actually a, a story that I wrote up, true story of a guy named Indian Joe in Alaska who was flying twin otters on the North Slope in the wintertime. He flew for us in the summer. He flew uh, cargo and people in twin otters up uh, on the North Slope in Alaska. And um, it's really boring up there. There's no timber, there's no uh, mm. mounds, whatever. Yeah. And uh, he's flying along and he fell asleep. He's the only, there's only <laughs> one pilot. He fell asleep, and uh, you know what woke him up? Huh. His landing gear bouncing off a hilltop. <laughs> yeah. well, you, somebody's watching out for you, I think. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, Alaska's full of those guys, I and mean, they treat their airplanes like we treat a car. Yeah. Just going down the store for milk. They pulling into the driveway some some great pilots up there well also you'll you'll still to this day you walk up to some native kid in a in a village he's got a plane there and you go uh, oh how'd you learn to fly my brother taught me you yeah. know they don't they're not even <laughs> paying for ground school or anything yeah so most of your uh, work was in the northwest right a lot in Alaska. A lot in Alaska. I jumped up there for 25 years, uh, and their season usually starts and ends earlier. So we get a lot of help from down south bases up there, and then our season is over, and we come down and, and mm. jump these bases down here. So, yeah, I've jumped at all the, all the bases over that length of time. Have you had equipment malfunctions in your shoots? I only had one uh, that you would call a malfunction on a round parachute where it, the guy who packed it accidentally packed it backwards. I mean, uh, I'd have to draw it out to explain to you. It would take too long. But um, he, he missed one, reversed one procedure, uh, one step in the procedure, and he ended up with the bag backwards. So when I opened up, the shoe's going the wrong way. Oh, boy. Had the slots in the front. Right. But that, you know, that wasn't that big a deal. You just look around and steer this way and 
Oh, oh, so, so it did open. So it was it opened, just going yeah. backwards. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you never had to pull a reserve chute? Nope. Hmm. No, never did. Are you happy about that or a little disappointed? Uh, no, I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. you know, if you did have to pull one and uh, everything worked out fine, it'd be good bragging rights. So, yeah, yeah I guess in a way, but yeah. I was pretty happy that... Uh, just sit there waiting on my chest and never have to use it yeah do you uh did you have any like really hairy situations with fires getting backed into Um, corners yeah uh they sent me down uh, from alaska with five crews in 88 when all the fire they had all that fire at yellowstone park yeah Prior to that, we had had a big season in Alaska, so we had already done a lot of jumping and then came south. I came as a single resource with uh, five crews, and I'm the administrator for those five crews. And um, uh, those guys, um, what'd you ask me? <laughs> How about uh, hairy situations? Uh, hairy situations. Sorry, sorry, I got drifted off. On I, I should mention, by the way, this is tangentially speaking with a hangover. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we arrived yesterday. Yes. We're uh, partying pretty pretty hard last night, and now it's the next morning. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all I've got is coffee to prop me up. <laughs> not doing it, and that's decaf. Uh, yes, we're this all was in decaf. trouble. Um, yeah, uh, I ended up, uh, to make a long story short, they were sending my crews up into an incredibly dangerous situation, breaking every rule in the book, so I volunteered to go up with them. I went up there, and we were going to do a burnout, and the uh, the weather guy, I had at least gone and talked to the weather guy before we went up there, he said, at exactly midnight, your wind is going to change. And I'll tell you what, that guy had it on his watch. In five minutes of, of midnight, the wind changed on us, and the fire got up on a two-mile front and wasn't ripping at us hard, but was showering a lot of um, mm. sparks and starting uh, fires around you. Yeah. And I had five very inexperienced uh, village crews, Alaska village crews, counting on me. Well, also, there were six other crews that were camped in the meadow or they were going to camp in the meadow they saw it stand up too and so i just reversed everything got out there with those 11 crews and started sounding like napoleon <laughs> bonaparte uh you know just because somebody had to be in charge yeah. for a while and um I did know this one crew, and I said, Henry, you know where that trailhead is? And, okay, everybody, before we go, nobody is going to run. You're going to walk out of here, and we're going to be ahead of that those flames. And they all did. They they were great. Nobody broke and ran. And, and then, uh, of course, we're in those situations. You go out last. So yeah, it worked out. There were there were situations like that. I don't ever feel like I came extremely close to getting killed. You never had to get in the protective. I never had bags. to uh, deploy a shelter. No. Yeah, yeah. Those shelters, and I don't know. 
What was that situation? Was it New Mexico recently where like 10 guys died in this? Uh, it was 19. 19. It was uh, 19. the biggest uh, death in the history of firefighting, I think. Wow. Yeah, one kid made it who wasn't with them. He was That's the right. He was the lookout, yeah. Man. Yeah, that was a, a really sad deal because that crew boss, uh, he had done everything right and gotten those people in a safe position. The general situation was still almost manageable, and they heard that their town was threatened. And they took off cross-country to get to it and instead of staying with it. I think, I haven't read the final report, so I'm, I'm not sure that's uh, 100% accurate, but uh, something like that happened, and it's a shame that poor yeah. guy must have spent the last five seconds thinking, oh, man. Yeah, that's... Big mistake here. That's a pretty bad way to go, I would yeah. think. yep. I had a Rolagon, uh, a 500-gallon fuel container that they parachute from big cargo ships because you end up having a lot of need for fuel out in the remote Alaska areas, you know, when there's mm. fires. So they'll drop those in. When they come in to drop them, you have to be out of the way. It's a very big object. And... Uh, they asked me to take this guy over, um, a resource guy, to look at a cabin, see if there had been some damage on this cabin. So I counted the passes of the, the plane that was dropping those rollagons, and I miscounted. And we got in the boat and went across, and it turns out the plane had one more to drop. All of a sudden, I hear it coming, and... It's right dead on line, just going straight over the top of me. So, okay, you just pay attention. And it's a giant object, but it's swinging under canopy, and, you know, you get out of the way. I was looking up through the trees, and from behind the trees, I saw three gigantic parachutes floating away empty in the breeze which means that the Rolagon has broken loose from all the rigging and is right. free-falling. Right. Oh. <laughs> 4,000 pounds. <gasps> A fuel tank. Of, it's rubberized fuel. So that blasted through the treetops. I had just enough time to turn my head. That was all, all I accomplished. And it hit right about where the dog <laughs> house is. What's that, 25 feet? Yeah. It was maybe 30 feet. Holy shit. <clears throat> and dug a ditch, the width of the Rolagon, so that's about three feet wide, and right down to permafrost, two feet underground, yeah. and up there it's all frozen, of course, yeah. and um, tore all that out and hit the tree right next to me. But the fuel, of course, exploded oh, out of it. Really? Oh, no. And hit me dead on, right square in the front face, everything. Well, I had my head turned. And uh, a lot of people who don't deal in this kind of thing, they'll, they'll go, so you got wet? I'm going, wet? <laughs> I got knocked 30 feet. <laughs> Is that your idea, wet? Anyway, um, 
No, not 30 feet. That's an exaggeration. I'm probably uh, 15 feet. And it probably knocked me out for just a second. Uh, and then me and that guy hiked out of there um, and went across the river in a medic. Uh, actually, I had a nurse from, uh, from town was actually the medic on the fire. Mm. And uh, so she had me take my clothes off, laid me on my back, and was putting salve on, you know, in case of chemical burns. Mm. So she got me all covered up my shoulders, down through my chest, down past my belly, and, and she's getting down there pretty low, and she said, well, you might want to continue from here. And I couldn't resist. I said, you're the nurse. I wouldn't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not. I'm not trained. <laughs> so, so she continued. <laughs> oh, man, so uh, did is this something you knew you wanted to do when you were a kid? Do you have a family history of this? Or? No, no. I had no idea. Uh, and then a buddy of mine, Rich Tomich. Uh, Wanted to do it because his older brother did it, and I just followed him in. Mm. And then he went off to fly jets, and I just stayed jumping. And this was, you grew up in Washington State here? Uh, yes. He and I graduated from Prosser High School, go Mustangs. And uh, we're getting a show here from a swallow, two swallows. And you just went into it, so and this is what, late? This is 67. I was uh, I graduated 66, went on a timber crew, which was very fun, just right up here in White Pass, and then immediately to a hotshot crew in McCall, mm -hmm. Idaho. Uh, that crew doesn't exist anymore, Payette Hotshots. And then I started jumping the next year in 68. How many, how many guys are there in the States that are doing this? Um, fluctuates. There's... Uh, Nine bases, probably averaging uh, 60. Hmm. So 500, approximately. And they're on call summer months, generally. Yeah. 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 They so tend, it's a, They tend to be coming on a little earlier recently. If that's global warming or what's causing that. Uh, that seems pretty common. Uh, but, yeah. And these are guys, typically, they work six months out of the year, and then they're off six? Because um, you can't get a normal job, right? The uh, the younger guys who are just arriving, say, the first five years, that's kind of their what they're doing. Mm. Uh, as you go up through the organization at the base, you get guys staying longer because they have duties, you know, some job. And then uh, there's uh, maybe half a dozen that work all winter. Mm. There's work to do all winter long, getting the contract, the airplane contracts ready, uh, doing repairs on parachutes, uh, all kinds of sewing machine stuff in the loft, <clears throat> and then all the admin stuff. So, yeah, that's about it. The season itself starts in Alaska in May. Uh, New Mexico in April and May, and then those two die out. Uh, first New Mexico and then Alaska. Alaska probably lasts till about mid-July. Mm. 
and then it'll start up down here and everybody will and you're all pretty much always uh, parachuting into unpopulated areas wildfires most of the time because you know that's the point otherwise um, you get in on trucks the the only um, well the the biggest uh, change from that description is that because you have so much um, firefighting experience per guy at a jump base because he's already probably done hot shot time and mm. maybe engine time or helicopter time before he gets there. Okay, so you have this big bank of experience. Uh, and so it would be common to uh, jump um, a fire that is accessible by road, but you need this expertise. Oh, okay. So that, that happens some. Uh, but mostly you're right. Mostly it's just backcountry. And a lot of controlled burns? The control, well, by controlled burn, uh, usually firefighters would call that controlled burn in the fall when they purposely burn a unit of mm. territory. Uh, and then in the firefighting itself, there's a lot more burning out uh, right. in the firefighting than there was when I started. Just as a way of controlling the fire. Yes. Get rid of the fuel. Yeah, yeah. they do that a lot. So that's one of the helicopters that I, that, that where I met Rod, we were on the same crew. You know, I, I could hear that helicopter a few minutes ago uh, through the mic. It's really picking it up. Loudly. They're actually looking for something. You know, I wonder if they're looking for smoke. I thought... It looked like yesterday you had a little bit of a little bit of that Yeah, they're just flying their hours, too. I don't know. It's always good to see them flying. Yeah. So, are guys who do this generally really good under pressure, I guess, right? I mean, that's what one of the main things you're looking for. I'd say pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in general, uh, you wouldn't get guys... Um, that would fly off the handle too much. Part of that, though, isn't necessarily personality. It kind of sounds like that's what you're asking, if mm. that kind of personality. But it's just experience level. Mm. They've been around, same thing like I was just saying. Yeah. They've been around fire for 15 years already, and so they know that most situations are not panic-driven. There's no need to panic. So. Yeah, it's so not going to benefit. Maybe some uh, personality there. Um, along with uh, the experience. You know, sometimes when I'm talking to Justin, I, I feel uh, like uh, not, not, not jealous or envious, but one thing that's been missing from my life is a lot of uh, camaraderie, right? Because I've been traveling independently, and yep. so I don't, have a lo I don't have a lot of community. And just listening to you talk last night and your annual get-togethers with your buddies and stuff... It really feels like you got, in a way, the the best parts of, of being in the military without having to kill anybody. You know, in fact, you're doing something really positive, but you get that brotherhood. I actually had never uh, compared it in my own mind to the military, although I am jealous of those guys in some ways for the camaraderie that, that they have. But, yeah, there's some pretty solid... Um, feeling between the guys at every one of the bases. And the jumper community in general 
has come closer together in, during my career. Hmm. Not nothing to do with my efforts, but um, the um, the bases were more autonomous at one time, and just had their own numbers and uh, etc. Even though you would boost other bases at times, uh, they were pretty separate. Then somebody in Washington figured out accurately that it was cheaper to have less total jumpers and travel them more mm. because you save all the training time. Right. So uh, about, uh, when did that start? Maybe early 80s? Early 80s, maybe. Um, guys started traveling to the bases more. We got to know each other better, and there's still a competition between the bases. See if you can trick your buddy and such, but... But uh, a lot closer relationships, so the camaraderie between all the jumpers uh, kind of improved. Are, sm- are smoke jumpers sort of an elite? Are they more you know, respected than your? You know, you, you make them cringe saying that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, you know, the, okay, it's a perfectly legitimate question. The problem is yeah. that the media... They only got 30 seconds to say something, right? Right, right. So what are hotshot crews called now? Shock troops. Oh, yeah. Because somebody on Fifth Avenue decided <laughs> shock troops sounds like a big deal, right? Yeah, so right. now all hotshot crews are shock troops. Well, yeah. one thing they never bothered to tell you is, on the one hand, hotshot crews are... They put out most of the fire. They're the most experienced actual crews uh, nationwide. I got great respect for them. But 20 years ago, the government increased the number of hotshot crews from 60 to 120. About a quarter of that increase, these are new crews, were horrible crews and still are. They're not shock troops. But they got a better name. They got it's a all better the branding. Name. They're called hot shots. <laughs> okay, I don't want to say bad things about hot shots because, first of all, they'll chainsaw me to death. And <laughs> secondly, it's not true. They're great. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the media ruins uh, questions like you just asked me because I can't, <laughs> I can't use the, the word elite and yeah. myself in the same yeah. sentence anyway. <laughs> yeah, so, so there's a certain amount of uh, obligatory humility among the elite of the, the hot shots, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. I, li- I, th- I always thought the term hot shots was really cool, you know, because it's like a Top Gun kind of thing. But also you've got the heat reference, right. you know, that works perfectly. Well, the thing is that that word has been around forever, and everybody's used to it, and, you know, it doesn't carry any weight to it. It's just, okay, they're a hot shot. Yeah. Um, well, and also, it's it, you know, that gets back to the military thing. You know, why make everything military? You're, you know, that's a very American thing, but you're out there. If you're fighting anything, you're fighting fire. But one thing I, I know from hanging out with firemen a little bit is, that generally, uh, you guys like fire. You're interested in it. And oh, yeah. It's a beautiful thing, right? They're it's all not the enemy. They're all arsonists. That happens they're a hard. lot, right? They, yeah. They wouldn't ever. I don't. I've never known anybody that would, uh, you know, purposely do some 
actually arsonist yeah. act. Yeah. But they love lighting fires when they're supposed to. Yeah. When you, yeah, that's great fun. Well, it is a pretty amazing thing. I, I just read an essay recently about, um, it was arguing basically that the thing that makes humans human is their relationship with fire. Huh. You know, and it, it sort of went through this, you know, the first controlling fire and then changed the diet and kept predators away and allowed them to relax at night. And, you know, very early stuff right through the internal combustion engine and, you know, burning all the accumulated fossil fuels from ages past. And it just used fire to chart the whole progression of the species. And I'll tell you, it's as good an argument as any I've ever read for what made us what we are, you know. Who's that? Uh, it's a, it was on Eon magazine. I'll uh, I'll, I'll email mm. it to you if you're interested. It, it's a very good essay. I don't remember who the author was. Hmm. Interesting idea. Yeah, because you know I've I've thought a lot about uh, the the millennia in which humans have sat around every night, every night of their lives, sat around looking into a fire, and you know you and I were talking earlier about how. Computer technology uh, actually affects the development of the brain, mm-hmm. right? Well, imagine how did fire right. affect the development of the brain? We're talking about computers 10, 15 years. With fire, we're talking about millions. Right. How did that, those dancing flames, that that constant change and unpredictability of, yeah. a, of a fire, you know, affect the, the way our brains evolved? It's, well, it's so unique. There's no... Uh, you can't get that effect any other way. Uh, yeah, a campfire yeah. sitting in front of you—it's—it's it's pretty hard to uh, imitate. And of course, biologically, you can't prove that there was any uh, effect at all. But it, it, I got to admit, you're right. It's hard to believe that you could have a culture, uh, cultural history, where you sat and looked at flames every night for 10,000 years and it had no effect at all. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, there, there's also the... I find it interesting that for uh, our ancestors, fire was this incredible gift, right, that had to be protected and right. cherished. And, you know, some of them didn't know how to start fire, so they had to keep it always, keep something burning, right? Carry it with you. Yeah. Because uh, it's a long wait for lightning to strike and then run up there and, you know, get another one. Uh, but it goes from this incredibly precious thing to, you know, now we've got fire and brimstone. Fire is hell, you know. Right. I don't know if you have you ever been in a steel factory, a steel mill? I never have. I've seen mm-hmm. lots of films of it, but I've never been in one. It's something. I, my father <clears> took <throat> me to one when I was a kid. And he, he, I'll bet. Is that in the... In Beaver Falls. In Beaver Falls. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big industrial area at the time. But just the, I remember they they have these huge buckets on cranes, you know, right. and the, the bucket's full of uh, scrap metal. And they sort of like roll it over, and then they've got these electrodes, two electrodes in the ground, I guess. But they're like the size of these uh, logs in your house, massive, and they just like lower them into it and then pump so much electricity that it melts that like it was like thunder. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Man. Yeah, um, I would love to see one. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Just, just the power, you know, the sheer power of it. 
so, all right. No, we wanted. I told you yesterday when we were coming up here um, that I thought I was gonna like be meeting a guy li- living <laughs> off the grid. I was picturing a guy living in an old school bus with a solar panel. Yep. Um, but what we find is this uh, beautiful compound here. You're not roughing it at all. Not really, no. No, uh, the only the only roughing it is um, uh, you don't get a ground cable for your internet. Yeah, it has to come over the phone, the uh, cell phone. Oh uh, yeah. Um, it takes us a while to get to town if you want to go uh, have some fun in there. <clears throat> but it's beautiful here, and especially this time of year, and uh, quiet. Except for those infernal birds chirping all the time. Damn, can we do something about the birds? <laughs> yeah. Where's my Where's my sound guy? Yeah, saying Milwaukee, Milwaukee, over and over. Come on, <laughs> get a life. No, actually, I love these birds here. One of the most species populous flyways in Washington, because mm. this is a little bit of a summit here, and it's going from all the desert country over into the timber valleys, <clears throat> back and forth. So a lot of bird species. So tell us about this book that's that's sold out right now on Amazon, but will be back in stock when, when this uh, podcast is posted. Uh, what's it called? Smoke Jumper? No, it's called Just a Few Jumper Stories. Just a Few Jumper Stories by Rod Dow, D-O-W. Good interviewer would have would have read that book first. I know. If I could get my hands on a copy, I mean, there. I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, it's a, um, a story, uh, 70 stories put together. Uh, most of the stories are from my jumping history. Uh, a few from the farm when I was with my brother and a couple afterwards. And what, what led you to write it? I wanted to archive the stories. Uh, I have had a notebook of one-sentence reminders to myself mm-hmm. of uh, <clears throat> about 200 of them. And I picked out 70 and archived those first so that uh, they wouldn't get lost. Uh, there's, no, um, there's no threat on the Pulitzer uh, intended here at all. <laughs> it's uh, they are intended as unpretentious uh, campfire stories, basically. Uh, but they're true. They're true stories. Yeah. yeah. I, I read uh, a couple on the way up yesterday in the car. Uh, I told you I read the one about Kenai, or not Kenai, Kodiak. Uh, Kodiak. Because uh, um, that jumped out at me because I was my boat was based in Kodiak that ah. I worked on one year. And, uh, yeah, the, the style is, uh, as you say, it's very accessible, very uh, easy to read, a lot of humor. And, uh, you know, and that's, you try to get too fancy about that and you end up being full of shit. Because, you know, my sense is that it, there, there's a lot of uh, appreciation for simplicity and sort of basic, it's a guy culture very much. 
One thing that they will not put up with, and I'm included, I'll include myself in the group, we won't put up with is uh, being pretentious. Yeah. About, you use the term elite, and uh, I suppose you could use that term about smoke jumpers because they get there with a lot of experience uh, and uh, they have a wide variety of skills. And some serious physical conditioning. And some and good physical conditioning. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, you you could uh, use that term. However, if any of them catches you as another jumper being pretentious or hey look at me or something, yeah. you're going to hear about it quick. Yeah. Because they, they don't like that much. Well, we were talking about that last night. How that. Um, sort of keeping everybody in the same place is uh, an important part of social units where you're dependent oh. on each other. Oh, all the guys at the same unit, you mean? Yeah, well, yeah. Just, I mean, whether it's the military or uh, firefighters yes. or cops or yeah. whatever, there's a lot of that sort of, hey, you're, you're nothing special humor. And I think that's important because you, you have to know that guy's got your back. He's not going to yes. be looking in a mirror somewhere. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, you want to be able to count on. You get a big variety in personalities at the base, luckily. Um, but there's a couple of requirements, you know, like you're saying. One thing I always thought was unusual: right before you jump, you do a, a two-man buddy check of all the gear, mm -hmm. uh, and so. And you have to be serious about it, you know? Yeah. So if you had a big battle with one of the guys at the base, giant knockdown argument or whatever, and then five minutes later you're on the plane and you have to check his gear, or he has to check your gear, both, you have to be able to sidestep that argument. Right. Completely. And then... Yeah. Go go back to being uh, pissed off at him uh, an hour from now, but yeah, uh, if you want. So that uh, is part of that camaraderie that you were talking about that does develop at a base, partly for things like that. And I imagine, you know, any community where you're in the presence of high risk, um, you. You know, it makes it very hard to lose perspective. Yeah. You know, like I used to work in hospitals a lot in Spain, and, and I loved being in hospitals because, A, because I felt like it was it was a sacred place. There are people there dying. There are people there, you know, you walk past them in the hallway, their spouse or parent or someone has just died. To just even be in the same room with them yeah. is, there's something really touching about that. Um, but also among the doctors, the humor... And the, the sort of appreciation for being alive, mm -hmm. I felt much higher because they're, they see death. They know it's real. They're not, you know, pretending this is all going to go on forever. There's something really beautiful about that. It could have an effect. Uh, the same thing you're talking about may have an effect at a jump base. It's a little hard for me to say. You don't, you're not actually seeing death the way a doctor does, surgeon does. But you're jumping out of a damn airplane. You're... Uh, there is some agreed upon danger. Yeah. Um, an actual a a practice jump, for example, 
not many guys in the plane would be nervous about that. Yeah. You know, you just go out in a little opening and, and practice, and it's usually pretty. So what is, I mean, what's the risk level of chutes not deploying? or Almost zero on, uh, on round parachutes uh, since anti-inversion netting was added to the round parachutes. Mm-hmm. Their, um, their failure rate is zero. Mm, really? Yeah. Wow. So it's all just people get hurt, they just fuck up, they well, forget to do something. Well, uh, the, the opening uh, uh, difficulties with square shoots is a little higher than that. Not real high, but uh, you can get um, more uh, problems with square shoots than rounds. And But then you have a square uh, reserve that's virtually identical to the other one. Um, I really don't know what uh, what rates are, mm. the uh, deployment rates. So it's one of those things that feels far riskier than it actually is. It probably, it's kind of a mix, because when you come, say, down south and jump these fires out in here, you've got rocks and steep hills and right. big timber. Right. Um, and uh, tricky winds, um, logging slash, right. water hazards. So, yeah, it, it'll get your attention sometimes. You're, You're coming in pretty fire. fast. Well, even from the plane, see, you, you can see when it's going to be a dangerous jump right. from the plane. Uh, and so everybody's very serious at that point. There's less joking in the plane. Uh, on a fire like that and because when you get out you want to be able to use every single second of your ride for steering Mm -hmm. you don't want distractions or whatever Uh, and uh, yeah it'll pucker you up sometimes (laughs) do you uh, do you feel like you develop an addiction to adrenaline your tolerance goes way up I always love the jumping and I I don't know. <laughs> it stayed about the same. Really? It developed. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, I was having just as much fun jumping in my 32nd year as it was in my first. Yeah. It was a ton of fun. So how would you find writing? Um, I always liked telling stories around campfires or listening to other guys tell stories around campfires. Uh and stories tend to stick with me. I just, one of those things you uh, that I can remember, seems like. Um, and, you know, I mean, I wrote uh, papers in college and this kind of thing, but mostly just wanted to archive the stories and tried to write it down on paper more or less the same way I would, I would just tell the story right. orally. right. I really didn't know if that was going to work or not, and um, for uh, a lot of people, it seems to be working, so <laughs> that was uh, satisfying for me. Well, you know, I think there's a a reaction in uh, in some parts of American culture against the fact that everything's become extremely produced and slick and perfect. Hmm. And like this podcast, right? This I won't edit this. Like I might edit, you know, like if we're talking about so we're thanking Justin for the water or whatever, I'll edit that out. 
but I won't edit our conversation. I won't try to make every second be, you know, packed with meaning and interesting. And my uh, intros are just me blabbering into the thing. I don't even write anything. I just like whatever I'm thinking about today. And uh, a lot of people like that because it, it's less scripted. It's less scripted and it's more intimate because of that. Right. You know, and uh, yeah, your stories the ones that I read yesterday, that that's what comes across. It's just like a guy telling you a story. but A guy who recognizes a story, which is always interesting how some people don't. They can have an amazing story right in front of them and they don't see it, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah I've, I had uh, a couple of examples on the crew of great storytellers. Two Southern boys, uh, Tommy Hilliard and Glenn McGahey, both from way south, and both excellent storytellers. It's, it's funny that that was probably the best thing you could be good at ten thousand years ago. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. forget computer programming or right. you know flying a plane. If you could tell a story, you were the everyone would love you. You know. Well, even think about now and um, barber shops in the winter time in Kansas. Okay, what do those wheat farmers got to do in the winter? Right. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is. The, the harvest is done, the, the land's prepared, all the equipment is re-oiled, and you've got three months left. Where yeah. do they go? They go to the barbershop. Yeah. So if you could tell a story at a barbershop in Oklahoma, you'd be set, right? <laughs> you'd still be in Oklahoma. Right. Yeah. I like this a lot better right here. So your son's a really interesting guy. I enjoyed meeting he's, him. Uh, he is going to be an interesting... He's already interesting. And your wife is interesting. I mean, that, you know, again, they talk about preconceptions. I'm expecting... First of all, I thought it was you living alone up here, which <laughs> is probably why I imagined, you know, a, a more rundown situation. Right, right. Turns out your wife's a public defender. I mean, right. I don't want to talk too much about her work. She's, she hasn't uh, agreed to be interviewed or anything, but doing fascinating work. She worked with farm workers for years yes speak spanish very well very and um, worked with farm workers a lot uh, let me give you an extremely quick one they eventually busted a methodist minister in the tri-cities washington who was renting out his crawl space to illegal guatemalans <laughs> Man, I hope he was getting a good price, you know. Yeah. But <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, Lisa does a lot of good work, and Julian is—he uh, loves living out here. He's a big reader. Uh, he's very good with origami. Uh, he's real mechanical. Yeah. Um, and he's interested in uh, biology and probably writing and you homeschooled him through eighth grade i homeschooled him through eighth grade yeah what was that like it was great but i'd go out there ahead of him every morning open up the school i got a little school room yeah out here in the uh, in the back of the rec room and uh i'd be there ahead and i'd stand up in front like i was the teacher and he'd come in good morning julian good morning sir and uh How's your family? And he'd tell me how his family was, which is me. <laughs> and uh, it was especially good that way when he was a little kid and he could, he liked to pretend that stuff, you know, mm -hmm. it, was, it was fun. 
And um, the nice thing about homeschooling, especially with just one kid, is uh, you can just take the day off and go skiing yeah. or uh, go to Seattle and, and look at a, a educationally interesting warehouse or something or whatever. Go to the um, Sea World or yeah. Uh, so that worked out really well, and then he decided he liked girls and wanted to be uh, at Natchez High School. And a month into it, he's already made the decision. I said, all right, okay, ninth grade. He's a month into it, and I said, you know, uh, there's not going to be any more midweek skiing. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's this kind of... Oh, no, look on his face. <laughs> he hadn't thought of that. Were you yeah. concerned that, that he'd suffer from a lack of community and you know, kids? Um, we've actually been asked that several times. People are interested when you homeschool your kid if they're going to lose uh, social interaction skills. Right. <clears throat> the thing that I found, and I've only got one example is and that's my son Julian. Um, he benefited from being around adults more um, and just uh, having more mature friends. It seemed to rub off on him rather than having a disadvantage out of the deal. It looked like to me, yeah. but it's only one kid. I I really have no idea. Yeah, um, well, and he seemed pretty pretty relaxed dealing yeah. with us. A couple of strangers last night. Yeah. Was, no, he's not scared of folks. He's uh, got some self-confidence. Um, <clears throat> he's a real interesting kid as far as he loves uh, all different kinds of humor. Uh, New Yorker and Mad Magazine and uh, Farside and Simpsons and, you know, he's into that kind of stuff. Were you uh, always intending to have a kid at some point in your career or was I didn't think much about it until I was about 40, maybe. And then I was running around and whatever. Yeah. And then I got thinking, well, if the right gal came along, I wouldn't say no. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. might as well check it out. Right. And right away, I ran into Lisa. <laughs> like uh, within months of that decision. Huh. And we met down in uh, Mexico and got along right away and... Pretty much been together ever since. And she was already living in this area at the time? She was, um, uh, oh, for gosh, what, what do you call her old job? Um, nonprofit uh, attorney. Right. What the heck is the public, um, not defender, but. Um, the advocate? No, well, some of them are advocates. Anyway, um, people who. Uh, don't have an attorney and it's not they can't afford an attorney and it's not covered by the constitution because it isn't a felony or it's not criminal it's you know private of right. some kind right. uh, custody cases and uh, uh, people not getting their pay from uh, from uh, their employers and this kind of stuff um, so she did that uh, in Oregon and was down in Mexico at a, uh, at a language school. And we got connected up from Murray Taylor, a guy, another guy who wrote a smoke jumping book. 
told me to give her a ring and we met down there. Pretty good breeze kicking up. Yes. Chris, I met a, a previous girlfriend in Alaska back when the pipeline was going through and there was all kinds of action going on downtown Fairbanks, Boomtown, so yeah. 150 prostitutes from Oakland and L.A. and lots of bars open 24 hours a day and this kind of stuff. And uh, <clears throat> I met this girl, uh, and here's how it happened. I walked into the Flame Lounge, which was a dance club, looking for a buddy of mine. He was supposed to meet me there. He wasn't, he didn't show. So I walked back out on the street. It's about two in the morning, so it was broad daylight in Fairbanks in the summertime. And uh, I stood there thinking, okay, now what am I gonna do? And I felt somebody tugging the back of my shirt. And I turned around and the girl, uh, she was from Tacoma, her name was Tiger. Once she had been dancing on the stage, came out, jerked on my shirt. I turned around and looked at her. I'd never talked to this woman in my life. She says, I'm going to be in, in town dancing for six weeks, and I need a boyfriend, and you're the one I chose. <laughs> I go, oh, what? What are you talking about? And uh, I turned around and left. And um, I knew most of those streetwalkers around there, and... Uh, and I ran into one of them in the coffee shop, and I told her. She goes, she's probably serious. I said, what do you mean serious? I never met the girl. She said, go back and buy her a drink, see if she's serious. And I went back over and bought her a drink, and uh, she and I ended up going together for two years after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tiger Carson, Tacoma, Washington. All right. Yeah, I, the first strip club I ever went to was in Alaska. Really? The Alaska Bush Company. The Bush Company in Anchorage. Yeah. I was so not, I mean, I was so dead set against it. Um, you know, I, I was convinced that anyone who would be a stripper was a heroin addict with four <laughs> kids, and it was desperate and, you know, pathetic and sad. And, you know, it was, Turns out not to be true at all. <laughs> these buddies convinced, I mean, it was so bad. I went with these buddies, you know, we were, had some car, I don't remember how we got a car, rent a wreck or something, and uh, they wanted to go, and I went with them for the ride. We were staying in Kenai at the time, I was working in a cannery, and so we drove up to Anchorage, and I said, I'm going to just hang in the car and read, you guys go ahead. So I sat in the parking lot in the car, and they went in, and then a few minutes later, a friend of mine came out, and he's like, Chris, come on, you got to come in, man, it's... It's unbelievable. <laughs> and I went in. Yeah, that was legendary. That was, man. I mean, those women were happy. If they weren't happy, they were faking it so well. And I think the amount of money they were making, right. they were see, pretty they damn were, happy. Is, see, Fairbanks, during the pipeline, the whole downtown Fairbanks was like that. The entire uh, amount of money, whatever, it kind of turned out to be $11 billion, I think. Most of that was going right through Fairbanks because the pipeline was going two directions out of Fairbanks. Right. So a lot of the money was right in downtown, and it was really amazing to watch. Yeah. And, like you say, it made it less seedy because 
there wasn't a lot of, there's not violence for one thing. There was almost zero violence. And even though it's um, streetwalkers and they're pimps, they all they were all making money. Everybody was happy and partying and having a good time. So yeah. it did uh, make it a little better. Two yeah. illegal gambling halls. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So that was real Wild West back then. It was. You, you were based in Fairbanks when you were up there? 75, 76. Uh, the biggest year was 76. <clears throat> but uh, 75, 6, 7, they were putting the pipeline through. And I was there from uh, 75 through 99. In 1983, I got busted in Fairbanks for eating a Snickers bar I hadn't paid for in the grocery store. <laughs> and people have heard this story on the podcast before. I won't tell the whole story. But I spent uh, Memorial Day weekend in the uh, Fairbanks Correctional Center. Been there. You been there? Yep. <laughs> I, I went to jail twice in one night. <laughs> That's funny. We've both been in the same facility. Home of the FCC Eagles, as I recall. Uh, they put me up in the gym, my buddy and I. Who got, oh, they did? Yeah, the, the, the intake guy looked at the arrest report and he said, What, a Snickers bar? Are you fucking kidding me? But what happened was the cop who, who came in to process whatever at the grocery store found that knife in my boot that I told ah, you that story last night. Right. And that was all right, because it's Alaska, and I also had some weed in my pocket, which was still all right in Alaska legal. in those days. But it was enough to you know make him decide to teach us a lesson. So he took us in, and we were in uh, from Thursday night to Tuesday, I guess. Because everyone was off for the holiday. You stayed in there from Thursday to Tuesday? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the guy, the intake guy was, was very cool, though, because he, he saw what bullshit it all was, and he said, all right, look. Also, by the way, we were wearing shorts with no underwear and a jacket with no shirt because we had put all our stuff in the laundromat and then wandered over to <laughs> use the phone and all this happened. But, uh, yeah, so he looked at us, a couple of 19-year-old white boys, and he was like, yeah, you guys are going to sleep in the gym on some cots. And uh, But what, the reason I was reminded, you're talking about all that money. I mean, that was luxurious. Yeah. It was salad bar and whole wheat rolls and white rolls. At, and, the, at the correctional facility? Yeah, yeah. You should have seen the pipeline camps. I'll bet. <clears throat> There's a spread at the, well, it's an entire ATCO trailer. And then this is where the chefs are, and then more atcos for seating. Right. And uh, there's a guy behind there that has, he's got a full chef's hat, old-style <laughs> chef's hat, and uh, and they'll give you anything. Yeah. Um, uh, how about steak and uh, king crab? No problem. Right yeah, here. That'll work. <clears throat> Serve it up and hand it to you. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, Alaska's an amazing place. You know, everything's so expensive. Yeah. But you, if you get a job, you're making twice as much right. money as you right. would anywhere else. But you got to have work. Yeah, you got to have work. You don't go there without a job. <clears throat> That's what I did. But, yeah. You ever have any bear situations when you're up in Alaska? You know, you see black bears a lot. I got a frog in my throat, excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, I'm just going to check and make sure this is. Recording properly. I can't see it in the sunlight. 
barbecue down across that little plane, and now they're back in that next rod out. <coughs> So you saw the elk right coming out yeah, of his draw? They came down out of that, right where I thought, you know, where they were in bed, they were in that, that, that drainage. Right. And when they rode the horses up, they came down and crossed over, and then now they're two drainages over, I guess. Oh. Uh, bears. You asked me about bears. It's real common to get uh, black bears in camp, uh, especially after you have fresh food. Uh, after the third day, you get fresh food, <clears throat> and fresh food every third day from there on. Um, and they start smelling that and coming in. They're generally not that dangerous, uh, but after a while, they learn that you shooing them away isn't doesn't have much meat to it. Right. And they'll hang. They'll start hanging around in closer, and pretty soon you got a problem. So there are situations where you actually have to eliminate the bear. Um, <clears throat> grizzlies are very seldom a problem. They're much shyer than the blacks, much bigger and scarier, but they pretty much stay away from it. The only way to have trouble is uh, if you're in a creek bottom. It's got a lot of brush in it, and you're walking quietly. Yeah. You want to make noise all the time <clears throat> so you don't surprise them. Other than that, you don't really have trouble with grizzlies much. So you say you're every third day you get fresh food. So how, how long are you out on these? This is, you're talking it's, about in a remote area. Yeah. You've jumped in. You set up a base camp. Yeah. And they're flying food out <clears throat> to you every three days. Yeah. Uh, it's every combination of uh, times you can think of. Uh, out the same day, overnight, mm. two nights, etc., etc. Uh, the longest I was out was 42 days on one fire. 42 days! Um, you're camped Holy out, shit. but they're bringing you um, a fresh food box that's built for six guys and will last for the full three days. You got steaks, uh, cheese, ham, canned stuff, potato, fresh potatoes, fresh onions. You know, it's it's not bad. Oranges, apples, candy yeah. bars. Um, what about showers? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, down south. And you guys don't have water, right? So you're fighting the fire well, with burns? Well, up there you have water quite a bit. Oh, yeah? Yeah, but let me finish. The down south, and almost all fire camps have a shower trailer contractor, yeah. so you can get a shower every night. But Alaska doesn't have any roads, right? So they are still fighting fire. A little more um, primitive method up there than uh, than having, you know, full size camps like we do down here and. And ATCO trailers and and computers inside of them and everything. It's hard to do. <clears throat> so, um, pretty frequently, you still have the same situation. You're out with crews. Every three days, they're getting fresh food boxes. And um, out of those, they make their sandwiches for their own lunch for the next day. And, um, and that's how it works. In Alaska... 
they are cooking for themselves, see. There's no caterers. I mean, there's no way to get a caterer out there because there's no roads. So everybody does their own cooking in tinfoil and pots and pans and stuff. So usually at the start and at the end of a 16-hour day, you would give those crews an hour of paid time to take care of themselves. Right. So the government actually pays them to do this. Yeah. So you've... I think one thing you and I have in common is we've both uh, lived very unusual lives. Very few people... And I get people listening to this podcast to write to me asking for career advice. And I say, asking me for career advice is like asking a stowaway for navigational <laughs> instructions. I have no idea how I got here right, right. and how this, you know, all the things that could have gone wrong didn't. You right. Know? Do you have, when, you know, you've got a 15-year-old son, obviously you're looking at things through his eyes and trying to think what would be good moves and bad moves. And Do you have any sort of general... Words of wisdom for people who are starting out and want to have an adventurous, unusual life? You know, I usually wait until I hear how serious they are about... You know, everybody talks about wanting to adventure, etc. People come up to you and tell, oh, I want to go up to Alaska someday. I understand you know about Alaska. Okay, one out of ten of yeah. those is going to actually if that, do it. If that. Yeah, that, if yeah. that. So... Um, it kind of seems better to just wait and hear what the person has to say before I give any kind of advice. Yeah. I can uh, give people advice on how to get into fire, of course. That's not difficult. Um, but in general, no, I'm kind of like you. My, I don't think I would uh, brag too much about how I planned it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's funny, like, what people imagine versus what's real like i get these these emails like oh you know i i want to be uh, like you a professor who's you know expert in blah 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 i'm no fucking professor (laughs) no no university would have me i'm sure uh yeah it's we're gonna get some thunderheads later guys maybe so reading the weather is a big part of the work you've done, I guess. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, you look for certain signals. Um, if you get a uh, cloud type called Altocumulus castellatus, which is long, thin clouds with little puffy castle-looking things on them, hence castellatus. Yeah. Uh, that means you're going to have lightning later in the day. Really? If those clouds don't look anything like lightning clouds. But then they go away, and they just signal to it's you. It's coming. It's coming, yeah. and then they go away. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it is cool. Nature yeah. just sets up a little message board. <laughs> and there's so much, so much of that kind of stuff that we miss it. Yeah. Because we didn't grow up learning any of that. You know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's. like you were saying last night about how the the rainbow exists in a relationship between your yes. eye and the sun and right. the, you know the angles and there is no rainbow out there without yeah. the observer seeing it i remember uh, i think it's philip k dick a science fiction writer 
who said people were, I think it was in an interview, he was being asked, what, how do you know what's real and what's not real? And, you know, getting into those sorts of issues we were talking about. And he said, reality is that which, when I stop believing in it, doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, listen, thank you. Uh, thank you for having us up here. This is my pleasure, man. It was uh, nice weather and yeah, good conversation. I drank a little too much last night. Yeah, you and me both. <clears throat> I think uh, you know this. This is probably the most low key interview I've ever done. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just like how can you not looking out at this view? There's you yeah. know just looking out into beautiful empty space. Plus the hangover. <laughs> <laughs> See, I thought I was pretty much lighting a fire under the uh, entire universe out here this whole time you've been talking to. Oh, no, I said I was low-key. <laughs> you seem really uptight and nervous. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so the book is, uh, tell me again, a few... A few jumper stories. Just a few jumper stories. Just a few jumper stories. The author is Rod Dow, D-O-W. If you're out there traveling the world, you might come upon signs that say Dow for seven. Is that what they say? Dow for seven. Dow for seven. going to tell everybody that? <laughs> <laughs> well, just in case they see it out there in the world. It's sort of an inside joke among Rod and his, his buddies. Because, I mean, that's actually worth talking about. I, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but you got into the, the fire service, started doing the jumps, and you've been there 32 years. You could have been going up and up and up in the administration, yeah. and you got to a certain level, and you said, this is where I want to stay. I didn't get to a certain level. It was the level I started at. <laughs> so <laughs> you decided to just stay there the whole right. time. I wasn't the only one. There were a couple <clears throat> others who did that. John Dubay did it and some other guys. Um, but uh, you got to jump more fires. And you ended up in charge of fires anyway because you're the most experienced, experienced guy there. Right. Um, so it um, the disadvantage is that they don't pay as much uh, if you stay at the, the bottom level. So are you in general um, distrusting of ambition? Uh, let me. It actually uh, suits the question. I just thought of a. Um, uh, John Dubay, the, the other guy I just mentioned, who yeah. did that same career as me, stayed at the bottom. We were sitting together on our first day of work, um, well, way into our careers, by the ways, identical career. And they handed us a form that had two boxes to check, just a two-part question. Uh, how many years do you have in fire control? And number two, are you inter interested in a career in fire? And John and I both wrote down 21 and no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like not wanting to marry the woman you've been living with for right. 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Don't want to make it official. <laughs> but I, the reason I ask that is I've always been extremely suspicious of ambition. It feels to me like uh, a scam designed to get me to do things that aren't really in my interest to do. I, I didn't actually answer your question then. Um, 
too busy talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do that in an interview. Um, yeah. Um, I don't really think I have been suspicious of of moving up or, uh, or ambition, whatever. Uh, what I'm suspicious of is after they move up and then all of a sudden they act completely different. Mm. That, I don't like that. And you're, you're afraid you might become a, an asshole if you moved up the ladder? You know, that wasn't part of my decision process, but I really have no idea. Uh, when I'm in charge on a fire uh, or a division supervisor, I would go out as a division supervisor a lot. Um, I wasn't an asshole, so I guess not. <laughs> you could have been king. You would have been good. <laughs> one too, too worried about it. Yeah. You know, Chris, I had a, uh, I was in charge of a burnout on this one part of the division. They were burning out a whole valley, and it slowly comes around to my turn, and I'm the div soup, and I'm in charge. <clears throat> so we get the thing all set up, ready to go. We're just waiting for the relative humidity window for the, the air to get dry enough. Mm. So uh, I got my crews deployed, and I'm sitting there uh, eating my sandwich. You know, we're just waiting, doing nothing. And uh, somebody comes running up to me and goes, uh, there's a guy over there lighting your chunk off. I go, what? By himself? And I run, get crews on the radio, yeah, yeah. Run over. It turns out it's the ops chief of the entire fire, the guy who's in charge of tactics strategy for the entire fire. And he has lit off my chunk, and uh, some words get back to him, and he comes up to me, uh, he drove all the way up there the next day, two hours. He's an important guy. Drives all the way up there and finds me. He goes, do I owe you an apology? I said, well, I love your attitude, man, but tell me what the fuck you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, he goes, <clears throat> i got to tell you a secret. Nobody knows this. I flew up here, or up on the whole fire, in a helicopter yesterday. I got out. Guy's name's Mitchell. Um, I'll think of his first name. He was—he's a great guy, stocky, linebacker-looking guy. He goes. I got out of the helicopter. I was so thirsty. I downed one of those giant. Um, what are those caffeine? Uh, oh, Red Bull. I, I downed a giant Red Bull right before I came out to your fire, and I was so hyped up on caffeine, I lit your junk off. <laughs> <laughs> Mitchell, what the heck? Uh, oh, man. Just uh, had to do something. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to turn this damn thing off. Okay. So th then we can relax. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Rod. All right, that was my conversation with Rod. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks to everybody. Sure Design T-shirts, as always, if you use the code sex at dawn, one word at checkout, I think you get 10% off your whole order. And uh, they're, cheap, they're cheap to start with. So, hey, there you go. And if you want, uh, if you want to get a Sex at Dawn shirt, a tangentially speaking shirt, a civilized to death shirt, hoodies, um, uh, what are those things called? Wife beaters, but when women wear them and are sleeveless, I don't know what they're called. But we've got those. We've got all sorts of stuff. And mom will send it all out to you. 
from her garage in Los Angeles, California. And the new um, Talking Out My Ass shirts are down there. They're still in a box, so I have to go down and unpack the box for mom. So uh, those will be up as soon as you hear this. Those will be ready to roll pretty much within a day or two. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and uh, I'll catch you next week. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.